Long after Harry Nielsen wrote that one is the loneliest number, and Bob Seger sang about feeling like a number, music streaming services are using data to help us discover new music that connects to our frequent plays and preferences. Today's Stats and Stories episode will be a conversation about music and data science. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm joined in the studio by Rosemary Pennington from the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Dr. Kobe Abayomi, Head of Science for Gumbel Demand Acceleration, a software service company for digital media. Dr. Abayomi was the first and founding Senior Vice President of Data Science at Warner Music Group. He has led data science groups at Barnes & Noble Education and Warner Media. As a consultant, he has worked with the United Nations Development Program, the World Bank, the Innocence Project, and the New York City Department of Education. He also serves on the Data Science Advisory Council at Seton Hall University, where he holds an appointment in the Mathematics and Computer Science Department. Kobe, thank you so much for being here today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Kobe, while I'm tempted to start with me singing a medley of my favorite songs. Please song- don't. Please no, don't. No, no, no. Come on. <laughs> a, favorite, a medley of favorite songs involving numbers? Come on, Rosemary. Well, I, but I think all would prefer hearing about how you got started working in the mixing zone where music and data science meet. Sure. I, you, so let me just, I'll just back up to, I'm thinking of um, that movie by um, Steve Martin, the, the Jerk. He starts off his story. I was a poor black child, and, uh, <laughs> which is funny because most Americans know Steve Martin wasn't. Um, <laughs> you can start the story anywhere, but just, I started recently with uh, sort of my escapade or experience in the the corporate world. I had been outside of academia or adjacent academia for about eight years, working in generally what's you know known as advertising technology, a relatively, I'll say, new field that grew because people have smartphones that generate lots of data, uh, that data is useful and predictive for how they are and what things they might like, right? I was working for uh, Warner Media proper, the large, which is now Warner Brothers Discovery, their merger with uh, Discovery Networks, monetizing their ad inventory. And so what's ad inventory? Inventory is is space, either time, you know, in a linear TV or some space, advertising space on, in a digital platform, CNN, for example, right? And so what that job redounded to was figuring out from these reams of, of data of, of people's uh, viewing preferences, who was most likely to see what uh, at what time and then from that it gave you just basically a, a map of affinities over time of this sort of person that sort of person this sort of person and then you'd go and you'd go to say hey you know people who are more likely to buy downy say at this time and so that science is going on you know all the time at most ad agencies and ad servers google for example matching uh, available ad space which is either time or time and physical space on well, physical, digital physical space on some platform and the likelihood of a particular sort of person audience segment viewing it. Um, from there, I was contacted by uh, Warner, Warner Music and for a couple of reasons I took the job. One, I love music. Two, 
it looked like I was really staying at the same company because it was still Warner uh, uh, Warner property, even though they had separated back in the 90s, I believe. And then three, I really, really strongly believed that a deeper understanding of audience segmentation from the music production side would allow people to make better music, right? Like if you really could tune into people's affinities, the music that would come out could be more nuanced, less bad, whatever. So I took that job and, and, and I worked that job for several years and learned a lot. And that's how I came to be in this field. So what exactly were you doing? Much of the work in the beginning was really just organizing, codifying the data that were slash are available to, I'll say, owners of, of digital content. One of the beautiful things about digitalization or the way in which people can consume content, and I don't just mean music, I can mean a movie as well, on, on demand, video on demand movie, <clears throat> that when you do it digitally, you are leaving a transaction level sort of fingerprint, right? Kobe, who has a subscription to Netflix, you know, watches Star Wars five o'clock in the afternoon. Kobe, who has a subscription to Netflix on the next day at five o'clock is watching, I don't know, Starship Troopers or whatever, some other sort of science fiction movie. And from this really granular, rich data, which has information about my identity um, and then information about my demand preferences, you can build up a scheme uh, to see, you know, what sort of person likes what sort of thing. And that's, you know, that's the, the engine of it, right? Once you have that uh, map or those data available and codified in a useful way, you can move on also to other problems, prediction problems, optimization problems. In the beginning, I'll say it was, <clears throat> and not the only person working data science to say this, you spend a lot of time just organizing things, like, oh, like, what's, what's here? Open the box and the tools are everywhere. That's why I spend a lot of time organizing that. As that continues, you, you know, you're trying at the same time to, to do science on top of what you have as you're pushing it forward and, and making it better organized and more useful. So we were spitting out models uh, predicting demand, uh, predicting demand at sort of a top line level, like without sort of nuance and audience preference or segmentation. And then as we got more audience information, predicting demand with that nuance, right? This sort of person listening to house music at nine o'clock at night, which is different from this other person who's listening to house music at nine o'clock in the morning. And that's useful for how you market, push, produce, right? Curate, buy, decide to buy, right? To different music. So I'm curious about when you're talking about some of these data, that the, some of the data that you're using, are there other ancillary sources that you're bringing in? You know, kind of, is there a lot of connection once you have, once you've identified that Kobe's watching Star Trek and, and Starship Troopers? I think you and I might have a similar playlist of, <laughs> of movies here, Kobe. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but once you have that, you know, so if, if Kobe's watching it then and John's watching similar kinds of movies at maybe a slightly different times, how do you, how do you start, what other information do you bring into this, this kind sure. of conversation? Well that's, a, well, that's a great question, and I'll say, I'll say two things. One, the, the sort of data I described is, you know, the gold standard, right? The transactional level data. And I'll say this, most rights holders or people who've created uh, some sort of uh, media which is being consumed digitally are two or three steps, like, thermal clients away from the generation of that data, right? Like, I, 
I make up a TV show, but you, you know, Cox Communications is the one that shows it and has a the box uh, on top of the TV that can tell who actually saw it. And depending upon the relationship between the uh, curation, creation of the media and you know the downstream consumption of it, what goes back and forth as data is almost never you know that sort of clean or deterministic. So one way in which one can use, and this is standard, I won't say standard, but this is you know something that people do, is to basically do probabilistic imputation. Here's some data that I've seen, this consumption records. How else can I augment this to things that I know that are deterministic and then do a join across something that's deterministic, which is, hey, this stuff was actually consumed, and the other side of it, who consumed it? Um, simple example could be, I know the gender distribution across many cities, and I use that information from the gender distribution because I have no other information about the eventual consumption to build a data set which gives me a notion of what's the gender, gender distribution of consumption. And I do it by joining data across the cities and then you know, augmenting that data with the gender distribution in each city, right? It, it, in the absence of, of gender information at each transactional level. So that's one of the ways in which we would use other data sets. And then another, another way we would use other data is so many things, I think, you know, can influence uh, particular sorts of consumption, right? I remember being younger, this is sort of, you know, just sort of a Gestalt sort of thing, watching some documentary about music during the 30s, how <laughs> there were a lot of light songs, you know, the others, the sunny side of the street, things like that, right? To, to get people to be able to modulate their moods and things like that. And so ambient effects, uh, ambient information has an effect on them. Um, media consumption as well. I'm always surprised. I listen to, I love music and I listen to a lot of it across multiple streaming platforms and I have a pretty eclectic taste. Like I love stuff like Lead Belly, but then also like Nirvana and Taylor Swift and uh, uh, MC, oh God, what is that? Megaran, I don't know if you know that rapper. He's a, I don't. He's a nerdcore uh, okay. rapper <laughs> who raps about like video game music and like, yeah. you know, anime and stuff. So, like, I'm always surprised when I open up, like, the For You and some of these streaming services mm -hmm. and find – because I'm, I'm really picky about music and I don't like people buying it for me. But when I right. open those things, I'm like, oh, most of the time, like, 95% of the time, like, I'm jamming to that, that playlist that they've created and it feels like I created it myself. And so, right. like, how, how – how does the data that you are create, gathering sort of help inform things like that, right? Because I'm assuming it is some right. like user inputs that's sort of coming right. together to sort of form how that algorithm shapes those playlists. Right, right. Which, uh, Which uh, service, service are you on? I'm just curious. I use Apple Music use most Apple often. Music. <gasps> My favorite, favorite too. I, I love <laughs> Apple Music. I think they have the best, richest, personalized algorithm recommendations. So let me say a couple of things and after that. The first is... So that DSPs, and by DSPs, that digital streaming providers, Apple Music, Spotify, Deezer, Amazon, they're going to have the richest take on who you are, right? Because you subscribe to their service, you buy stuff to it, <laughs> they turned off IDFA, and you can only, and you're using it through their phone, right? So they have the richest take on who you are. Apple Music, one example, and, and uh, so I can't verify that this is actually happening, but um, I would get up on Saturday morning, uh, start off Apple Music and start it on a, you know, it would start on its uh, 
progression of, of recommended songs, take the phone, go get in the car, start driving down the road. Now the phone is aware that I'm moving and it would change slightly the sort of music that I'm listening to. I, I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to not believe that they weren't aware of the motion of the phone and how that changes people's music preferences as, as, as well. So, th so that information, there's <clears throat> recommendation engine. And one of the things is if you're on the service for a long time, it gets a really good pickup on who you are. What it's also using is information from other people who have similar listening habits. And likely, although I can't verify for sure, they've got some encoding mechanism for the music itself, right? Beyond just is it consumed or not. But this thing sounds like this. They're able to take the sounds, break it up into some sort of embedding that's useful for prediction. So, so what are they trying to optimize? They're trying to keep you on the service, right? And when the billing comes around and, and you look at your account and you have to be like, ah, I don't want to cancel, this is so good. And that's a different thing to optimize than say a, a music label would be trying to optimize or a particular sort of artist, right? Particular artists want you to listen to their music uh, or their content. Um, so there's a tension between the optimization that goes on at the user interface level, you know, Apple Music and you, and you know, UMG, <laughs> and, and and what they uh, would prefer uh, you listen to. You're listening to Stats and Stories. Our guest today is Kobe Abayomi, head of science for Gumbel Data Acceleration. Kobe, you described your work in another another place I was reading that said that said you're trying to understand the quote intersection of demand and supply curves for musicians, artists, and music listeners, and right. and this seems like it follows up a little bit about your the comment you were just making. But can can you help us think about what what well, those demand and supply curves mean for those different groups? Sure. Let me answer it this way. Uh, when some, there's a talk I give, and I go through an example of a sample of a song, uh, The Meters, uh, Sissy Strut, it's a uh, 70s, I wouldn't say funk tune. It's really sort of a unique band, The Meters. But their sort of syncopated style is behind a lot of different music and sampling. Fast forward to 2006 or seven, six maybe? And there was a single, one like you know, Two Hit Wonder by an artist called Amory, where they're basically lifting the entirety of the the break in Sissy Strut into that song. And song, it was an amazing single, did really well. When you look for the antecedents of that sound, what you find is that it's in, in sort of mainline New Orleans music. You look further back, it's in samba, it's in Brazilian music. And so the supposition, you know, that I have, and, and then there's people who, who understand ethnomusicology you know, in, a, in a way much richer than what I do, is that you're making things that are appealing to vibrations, neurological memory, nostalgia, cultural currents that you know are old and, and, and instantiated. Um, and so in, in that way, our desire to hear certain things, our response, or, or joy or affinity for them when we hear them, the demand side of, of, of music uh, is, is, is very old, very rich, and can be well understood. Now, on the uh, supply side, 
a, a music company more or less these days, especially with digitalization, where um, you know four fifths of the money coming in through the door is via these streaming services. You're getting paid for the volumetric fraction of listening at a particular period of time, right? In more or less, and it's not this simple, but all the subscription fees, say for a company in January, I own music label X, how much of the listening by all the listeners who paid all the subscription fees was on content that I own the rights to, music label X, divide that by the overall listening. That's how much money I get in January. So it's very different from, I gotta excite somebody to go to the music store, buy something once, and then I forget about it, right? So if you're gonna make money in this new regime, you have to be able to sort of ride these changes in musical preference and be able to predict them, identify them, and predict them. Very different from like an artist-based model where, you know, I found Taylor Swift, and that's, she's very successful, so let me not you know, say anything like that, but I found this artist and I'm gonna mine them, right, and, and, and chase after their super fans. And what you can see in the data as the streaming becomes more ubiquitous and the underlying audience becomes more heterogeneous, less concentrated, people start to go towards pockets of familiarity, things they've listened to, and my notion is these are these demand currents that are older and nostalgic and sort of more sort of well-worn. And if you study the data closely, I, I, my supposition is that you can predict what's coming up next by seeing changes in listening patterns, by codifying the sound as information, um, and seeing which sounds are becoming popular and where that leads, yeah. I wonder, given the work you're doing, you know, like one of the things I think a lot of artists are kind of searching for in this environment, although I will say there seems to be a swing back to people buying like standalone albums, right? Vinyls got yeah. this huge increase, but it seems like, you know, you have to find that, that one hit that's going to go viral, right? It's going to pick up on social media. People are going to spin it out. In the work that you're doing or have done around music and sort of what people are doing with it, did you find anything in the data that sort of would suggest like if a if a song has this kind of a rhythm, it's going to be something that gets picked up and gets popular or like these? Did you do any of that kind of work or is that something you're interested in doing down the road? Sure. No, for sure. So I'll say a couple of things and just in general about sort of virality that I think there's not appreciation for how many preconditions need to be set or how much uh, dosage goes on before yeah, right. right before there's the appearance of, of virality. Um, so to take, for example, 2020, summer of 2020, that song uh, by Fleetwood Mac, there's a fellow riding his, his skateboard, sort of you know, dog days of summer, drinking a cranberry juice, playing the Fleetwood Mac song, very sort of tranquil Fleetwood Mac song. A lot of people started listening to it, new so-called viral moment. Well, you have to think about the, the conditions that, that set that. It's hot, dog days of summer, middle of the pandemic. There's a lot of sort of anxiety. There's a need to, to search for this sort of tranquility. And I think many other songs would have worked uh, and, and elicited the same sort of demand response. That's the, you know, it's just, it's just like probability overall, right? Like I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen, but I can give you sort of the curvature of what does and tell you sort of be there in that space, right? Hey, stand near the mean of that Gaussian distribution. Likely something's gonna fall on your head, right? And uh, 
don't stand out near the um, extreme values. Uh, but I, I think the way that people in the music industry, and this is something that, you know, I think is, is sh should change, <laughs> is, well, people have an interest in sort of believing in extreme values, right? And believe that it's driven. That, right. hey, I, I found the black swan. Ha ha, I'm the guy who finds the black swan. And stuff like that. Another example, I'd I, I love to talk about this example. So um, James Ambrose, known to the, the world as Rick James. <laughs> Buffalo, New York, with a lot of bands, a lot of different acts. Before he happened upon, I'm going to do a funk act that's going to have a new wave sort of sound. In a documentary about him, he's arguing with his producer about... What's that? What's that song? It's the one that MC Hammer sampled. Can't touch it. Super Freak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, his, his producer's like, the song is good. We have it where we want. We've got that sort of thick, bumpy bassline. Do 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 do. And Rick James is arguing for sort of this one four five chord change with a synthesizer that sounds similar to uh, Devo's Whip It, which had just been out, uh, I think, a year prior. And so they're going back and forth, and, and his producer is like, why do, I, why do we need that? He's like, because that'll get the white audience, right? Like, I want this new wave sound in this song. That's who I'm trying to appeal to. He wins, you know, and you turn that song on in a second, and you recognize the bass line. When the chorus comes and it does that change, it's immediately recognizable. So people who produce music, you know, and are at the sort of top level, are aware of, of how to sort of prime the pump uh, and what to put in to the song to elicit a certain sort of response from certain audiences. Your first example made me think of Tracy Chapman and sort of the moment she had oh, at the yeah. Grammys recently with Fast Car coming sort of back and how that was such an important song when it came out and then thinking about this sort of cultural moment where we're all very right. tired, everything is very difficult, and this story of sort of like hope but then hope that is kind of shattered sort of comes yeah. back to you know to, to popularity yeah. through a white artist and then she again on that stage has right. that beautiful moment it just made me think of like again that idea of you can't sort of predict what inputs are going to help something become popular you, you know what a first off what a beautiful tune second what a what a beautiful album that was in creation by her i think of that song i think of there was a sort of one hit sort of thing that went viral so-called viral that you know, Rich Men of Richmond sort of tune last okay. summer, if you can remember that. I can't remember that fellow's name. I, you know, and I, I think the music company started to awaken to it, like, hey, what, we, what have we done to country? And, um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I mean, I listen to country now, and that's not my understanding of country, right? And what I thought country was is out, ends up being outlaw country, Merle Haggard and stuff like that. Like, that's not where country goes. You know, you might have to erase some of this opinions about it. <laughs> what a start. But, but I, I mean, so I, I take, take Beyonce, for instance, and I haven't listened to her whole thing because it hasn't been released, but that first song, which is a so-called country song, right? It's, yeah. That's not a country song. And I, I was having a discussion with somebody online, and they were like, oh, you know, how radical, and this, and blah, 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 blah. So there's uh, 1971, Pointer Sisters uh, had a song, which was an actual real country song, won a, a Grammy, first black act. In my opinion, there's a lot to be mined in so-called country, and I think you can see it in the data, and there's a yearning, people's ears, as you get, again, you get more population, they're going back to stuff that's older because they're not finding newer representations of it in that genre, so-called genre. And I think a, there's room for, my opinion, 
authentic artists to uh, to gain some listening in that genre, um, just because it's sort of lifeless right now, in my opinion, right? Um, and sort of craving for, um, for for that richness to come back. I, I mean, John Denver, Bill Withers, those were country yeah. artists, right? Could they get on a country radio station today? <laughs> like, no. So, so you know, I'm 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 interested in what what's been the most surprising thing that you've learned while working with some of the data the data that you've you've been seeing in mu- with music. What what kind of did you not expect at all given the analyses of such data? The most surprising thing is something that we sort of stumbled upon last summer. Uh, I was working with a uh, grad student at Georgia Tech in the uh, uh, in the music school as part of the computational media program, and we were trying to look for alternate models for uh, predicting music demand over time, right? So again, under this new regime of music consumption, it's not just hey, I go to the store and buy it. It's like listen to it sometimes, listen to it sometimes, and it sort of tails off. And you see these sort of convex curves of demand arise from when a song is released. So we found a way to go from just the sound, so take the sound and process it in a certain way, um, to these you know, convex curves of demand over time that was really very precise. And I'm still working on the mathematics behind it, but it works so well. And it, what it makes me think is you know, the way in which we enjoy music and the encoding for that when it's proper. And I think those things, these things are well understood, right? One of the ways in which you can encode music is via the male spectrogram, which is to find the basically the, the frequency, the heights of the frequency distributions that resonate with the melodic scale that is really very predictive over large populations. And I thought that was pretty amazing that music has a determinism about it with respect to consumption when you think about it being uh, composed of different parts or being able to be deconstructed as a data object. And so that was pretty amazing to me. Um, and so we're still working on that. What do you think is the next big exciting thing uh, that is coming down the pike when it comes to data science and music? Well, you know, there's so-called AI <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and all of these large language models. I read some quote by somebody the other day. It was an economist. And he was saying, oh, you know, AI is not really AI. It's really just statistical correlation and pattern recognition. I was like, well, you know, there's a lot behind that, right? It's just, the word statistics contains multitude. So does correlation. So does pattern recognition. Right? And there's the richness of the methodologies that people have uh, uncovered computationally over the last 10 years. It's really not fair to just call it pattern recognition and statistical correlation. I, I think, and we use some of these tools um, in, in the work that I do to process uh, music. So, for example, there are so-called AI tools that when trained correctly allow you to clean up a sound or extract the vocals from it. Um, these were tasks, you know, 10, 15 years ago, very difficult tasks to do, signal separation and things like that. And so the models have become so much better and it makes it easier to record an album, right? Maybe not in a perfect environment and then clean it up so it sounds, you know, good and, and listening and listenable. 
On the other side of the so-called AI proposition, I think people are most worried about creation, in quotations, of, of new content, new with an asterisk by it, uh, from extant media without attribution, right, and without compensation. I, I've heard crazy things such as, here's my new generative model that's just sort of zero hot, <laughs> like I don't need any training data on it whatsoever, you know, things that just sound unbelievable. But um, I think, and I've seen some papers already where if you stick in training data and analyze only the, the output of the model that you're able to resolve and score, you know, what the model was, was using or the, the fraction or volume of training data from different sources. So I think there, there's going to be some work there so people can get compensated, right? And just like in all things, I, I, you know, I'm sure people were concerned when the theremin was created. Like, oh my God, <laughs> you won't need to know how to finger anymore. You can just go like this and make music. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Kobe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on X, Apple Podcasts, or other places you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. 